my name is David Clark. I'm a Wellcome Trust Investigator at the University of Glasgow School of Interdisciplinary Studies and leader of the Glasgow End of Life Studies Group. I'm Suresh Kumar. I'm the director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Community Participation, Palliative Care and Long Care. And I've been part of the core group which developed the, the neighbourhood network in Palliative Care, a community-based Palliative Care system in, in India, Kerala. Hi, I'm Devi. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta. And uh, my work for a good part of nearly 10 years now has been on Palliative Care in Kerala and its translations to other geographies in India. Well, welcome to the Dumfries campus of the University of Glasgow. Devi, it's welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> and Suresh, uh, welcome for the first time on this very cold November day. Um, I wondered if we could begin by asking you, Suresh, to just sketch in for us the, the sort of brief history of what is now sort of almost a quarter of a century of activity that's been going on uh, in Kerala in relation to the development of community-based forms of palliative care. Yeah, actually we started in 1993 uh, with a small uh, palliative care unit in uh, Calicut, that is uh, one of the northern cities of Kerala. And this was mainly an outpatient clinic and, and home care program. And it took another six years to formally launch a community based uh, or community oriented, fully community involved program. Uh, it was launched in 1999 as by the name Neighborhood Network in Politica, mainly in Northern Kerala. And over the next few years, it spread to the other parts of Kerala. Uh, and also uh, in 2008, Government of Kerala came up with a policy supporting the whole thing and also uh, ensuring the involvement of the government machinery in it. It changed the, the whole situation in that the uh, neighborhood, net, the community network was linked with the primary healthcare system and also with the local self-government uh, taking a major interest. Kerala has more than 1,000 local self-government uh, institutions, uh, the village level uh, governance and they started showing interest and now uh, 20, like 25 years from the first uh, unit now Kerala has uh, home care programs in all the local self government institutions actually more than 1300 programs and uh, the district level uh, groups have been platforms have been formed and supportive uh, inpatient and outpatient clinics have been set up in government hospitals and so the altogether thousand, all the thousand uh, local government institutions are into it, and along with that, more than two hundred NGOs are also working in it. And then Kerala now has become uh, the uh, most active hub for palliative care in India. You, you've spoken a lot there about the the spread and the, the numerical growth uh, uh, of these initiatives. Um, can you tell us a? bit about what lies at the core of them, what is the, the essence, if you like, of the, the Kerala approach to yeah, community palliative what, care? What makes Kerala uh, different or what makes the Kerala approach different from the rest of India and many parts in the other parts of the world is that basically recognizing that uh, advanced diseases, terminal illness, death and dying are not just medical issues 
they go beyond the, the problems uh, beyond medical issues and they are seen as social issues with a very strong medical component. So along with that professional medical and nursing professional involvement, uh, we have been enlisting the support of common man. The neighborhood plays a major role. So the, the neighborhood network program and the community programs focus mainly on empowering the neighborhood, capacity building uh, in the community at various levels, like the doctors also need to be reoriented and, and they need to know about the latest what is available in palliative care. The nurses need to be reoriented. Along with that, equally important is the local community, the neighborhood, which usually feel helpless about the, the situation. They also need to be empowered. They should know that they can intervene positively and their intervention can make a difference. So this is a message that we have been trying to, to give across and this seemed to have been effective and with the people involved in now. Uh, most people in Kerala know that okay, palliative care is their own, their business also, not just the doctors or nurses' business. I think that was the single most important achievement. You must have had uh, a pretty full-blown approach to public engagement and uh, publicity and awareness raising in the communities. How, how have you gone about that? Yeah. I mean, in Britain, people still mainly don't know what palliative care is, mm -hmm. but in Kerala it seems to become part of the everyday language. Yeah. Uh, many, like we, at multi-dimensional sort of, of drive, uh, media played a major role. Media have been a partner, uh, both the print media. In Kerala, most people read newspapers, and that helps, actually. And the, the media has been a major partner. And also, we have been approaching all the groups, including the local politicians, uh, the teachers, the government officials, farmers, everybody. Uh, so I think uh, uh, this is this is sort of spread in concentric mm -hmm. circles from the and also along with the the uh, publicity or along with the awareness or sensitization program, we could also demonstrate that uh, like it, it, this makes a difference. That also we we have been inviting people to come and see what's happening, and then take it up if you are interested. So I think that message has been useful. Uh, yeah, one of the newspapers in the one of the very popular newspaper in Kerala. It's actually the third most popular in India local newspaper, Malayalam Manorama. They did a six-month campaign uh, with us, like uh, including front-page stories and uh, so spreading the message across and also helping with training programs. And also, I think the decentralized the the decentralization helped a lot because. Uh, is, there is no single central agency responsible for generating publicity or responsible for developing program. Uh, each of the local groups uh, can do that and they have been doing it. And so stories come from various corners and also uh, good models come from good various models, various components and this also helped. And the, I think the local ownership, uh, like a lot of people feel that they own it. Quite, quite large number of, that also helped, mm. I think. And have you been able to engage sort of celebrities from time to time? To yeah, yeah. Initially, yeah. initially, one of the like one of the leading uh, film uh, uh, that is the actor, uh, he was with us in the beginning. That actually, again, uh, in the beginning, uh, like sort of, uh, he was involved and and he was still involved, but to a less extent, uh, to attract people and then crowdfully. But later on, he himself was telling that, okay, 
uh, I'm not needed now because the concept itself attracts mm -hmm. people. Yeah. So that is a transition actually from uh, the celebrity environment to later wider. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Devi, how, how did you get drawn into the world of palliative care in Kerala? Um, I was quite serendipitously and accidentally. So I was uh, in my second year of PhD, just in the middle of coursework and uh, traveling through Kerala. I was interested in uh, alternatives to mainstream forms of organizing, specifically corporations. And so I was interested in looking at uh, vanilla cooperatives, you know, cooperatives more broadly, but I was aware that there were these vanilla cooperatives and also fishermen's communities. This was the thick of the recession, so vanilla cooperatives were shut down. And I was making my way to these fishermen communities when a chance conversation with my uncle, who was also involved with the... He's a journalist. He's a journalist, uh, Mr. Madhavan Nair, who was involved with uh, Korikod Medical College. He's also a friend of Dr. Suresh's. He mentioned that, look, there's a com there are community-based organizations in Korikod working on palliative care. Why don't you come and take a look? And I had no clue what palliative care was. I had absolutely no idea and I was interested in uh, communities which were involved in some economic activities but I thought okay I'm heading over there let me uh, speak you know find out what's going on and uh, I had my very first meeting was with Dr. Suresh so uh, in many ways I feel very privileged to be speaking with him at this point and he was very generous with his time and uh, to the fact that he had to explain to me what palliative care was <laughs> you know and there was also Saif at that time who was working with IP, uh, Institute of Palliative, Palliative Medicine and he kind of broke down the whole movement for me. And I think since then it's been an entanglement, you know, for the last 10 years or so I've been working on tracing the evolution of the palliative care, uh, uh, community-based palliative care in Kerala. That was my PhD thesis and I've continued to work on it after that in terms of papers and other writings. And uh, then around 2014 in a chance again conversation with Dr. Suresh he mentioned that we're doing something in West Bengal would you be interested and West Bengal is where I work so I said of course you know I would love to do that because my entry into the Kerala movement was somewhere at its peak in 2009 where you know the government has already come in and said that you know we are going to institutionalize palliative care <coughs> but this was a chance to see it seeded right at the point of inception mm. in mm. West Bengal mm. and so Dr. Suresh would come in uh, for the training and he would come in for these repeat visits. So it was a great chance for me to learn what is going on uh, as it unfolds, but also get a comparative lens in terms of oh, how did this play out in Kerala during that period of time. So that added further nuance to my uh, understanding of what was going on in Kerala. Mm. So um, it's been a fascinating journey in that sense in terms of uh, trying to understand this movement. Kind of take you back a bit then to that point of entry that coincided with the the major breakthrough of getting recognition within the government of Kerala for yes. this approach. So it yes. starts to find its way into the kind yes. of legal and policy environment. But of course, this is a very much a bottom-up, ground-oriented yes. uh, yes. uh, initiative. What was it that attracted you as an academic analyst from a kind of organizational studies background to, yes. to these things? I mean, in, in fact, uh, when I went in there, and this was the first week of December in 2009, and um, I went in there thinking this is a sort of phenomenon where you have a mother NGO and you have branches across and that's what is driving palliative care, but I still wanted to know what it was. 
it's only when, in fact, Dr. Suresh insisted that I go to uh, one of the peripheral units outside Korekot that I found that actually these are decentralized organizations. They're autonomous functioning units. And uh, of course, IPM is a nodal training agency in Koriko training, advocacy, and so on. But each of these units are functioning independently. It was from there on, I think I was mind blown because you have these independent organizations diffused across the state that are providing care locally. And as uh, Dr. Suresh pointed out, there's a lot of community ownership. So how does that community ownership come in for uh, people? in these areas who have uh, no prior exposure to health and not just palliative care. These were uh, ordinary people of society, ordinary uh, I guess would be, uh, <coughs> I, I'd say that these are people who have, uh, <coughs> who are non-professionals. Many of them would uh, not be, you know, you have farmers, you have uh, teach school teachers, government clerks. They're not typically your powerful people in society who can bring, you know, change tomorrow if they say something. So how is it that these people are coming together and organizing and bringing about so much change in society? Uh, that was to me fascinating. So this is really for me a question of how communities were mobilizing bottom up, taking decisions for their own and doing it sustainably over a period of time. So this, is, this was already in uh, parts of Malapuram that I was visiting. There were at least 15 year old organizations with long term volunteers uh, providing local uh, care at a very localized level. And of course, uh, culminating in the fact that it had brought about systemic change, which was, you know, institutional change is what we often thought, think about and how they've, through this grassroots mobilization, there was some form of institutional change that had come about. So that for me as an organization, as a student of organizations is fascinating, um, really. The question of how communities come together, mobilize and bring about change. I, I struggled a little bit as I tried to understand this more and as you described it. and. Suresh, as you talked about it in your lecture today, uh, how have you somehow managed to develop this at scale without it breaking up into factions and competing groups and sects and schisms? And mm -hmm. It seems as if it's kind of let a thousand flowers bloom, yes. allow people to do what they want to do at the local level. Um, but it still seems to be contained within a broad vision that everyone is implicitly signed up to. How has this been achieved, this level of consensus? I think one mm. of the factors which is keeping it together is the broad outline or the, the uh, what we call, uh, how the sort of mandate <coughs> uh, initially given to the small groups and later mm. uh, accepted by the small group. Because uh, <coughs> we are telling them that, okay, um, we can give you certain skills and and we can talk to you and we can give you certain knowledge and information and skills and it's up to you to decide what to do with it. And then if you are interested, we can also give mm. you outline and guidelines. Uh, again, uh, you can either follow it or you can develop your, your own guidelines. So, and also there are like in an area like palliative care, there is enough space for everybody. Because even a single, mm. when, you, when you look at the single patient's <coughs> need, mm. it's uh, so enormous that mm. you are not able to fulfill all the all the needs or all the demands of patients. So uh, there are regions now in Kerala. There are places where more than one palliative groups work, like the way it's developed in somebody a group, an NGO based group or a political party based group, and a 
LSGI based group. Um, there are certain areas which need to be again uh, uh, synchronized and also accepted, but uh, each of these groups they find they, they, they have jobs, they have, they can do it and they can. Uh, so I think the, the broader concept of, of palliative care and also uh, the, the earlier, uh, uh, the message that it's uh, for everybody and everybody can play a role. That keeps them them going, not mm -hmm. without actually, the, this is also well, when you work in the community you cannot avoid uh, having uh, uh, groups with uh, political, different political, specific political ideology or religious connection and that's uh, inevitable because community is like that. But there's something that we achieved uh, over the time is that uh, there is not much friction between these groups or, or, or like the and generally uh, initially when the model has been evolved or model has been set in and there are only small groups and uh, smaller number of groups but later on whenever they <coughs> a new group joined mm. they also followed the same uh, framework and same model and and now feedback from the community also helps like if now that it, at least in Kerala uh, you cannot underperform because people will come back they'll say that okay uh, this is not what the other other patients are getting so now when, when we train new groups of example I've been training uh, a political party Kerala is still going on in fact like the largest political party in Kerala communist party I was telling them that okay uh, uh, sort of it's different from what people are doing in uh, 20 years ago 25 years ago now that there are demonstrable models and now people know what they are getting in as political and so if your quality drops if you do it uh, differently but if you do it uh, if you ultimately it mat what matters is what the patient is getting so if the patients do not get what they mm. are getting from the other groups this will backfire so they understand it okay mm. now that because people know that so that I think that's also something that keeps the whole system going because uh, patients now know uh, the community or civil society knows what is to be expected from palliative care and they set there so you cannot underperform you cannot go beyond that so that's also because this is again I, I think one of the advantages of, of, of effects or effects of uh, community participation because the community takes ownership and they also demand that certain quality need to be kept. If you, if the community is only a sort of a client, this yeah. will not happen. It's because the, it's just the government system <coughs> without any community participation. The government can say that, okay, this is what we are offering or take mm -hmm. it or leave it. But a community-based organization or community-based movement cannot say that. Yeah. Uh, they like to listen to the, the community demand. That's how uh, palliative care, unlike the other places, palliative care for <coughs> or the the community-based uh, mental health programs, community-based programs for differently abled, these are all coming up on the palliative care platform. And because the local community demands it, they say that, okay, why do you leave this child out? Mm -hmm. So you like to respond, saying that either you like to explain your reasons or you like to take that up. So I think that is one major positive uh, thing. It's a sort of level of community accountability. Yeah, that, yeah. I know, think that's yeah. the one that yeah. keeps it going because yeah. the, uh, even if you do not like the other group, uh, you cannot uh, show it especially because the community will respond saying that why do you do that? Yeah, so. yeah. 
Debbie, could you just explain, perhaps for sort of external listeners to this, what these levels of organisation are? I struggle a little bit. I, I know how things began with this sort of loose network of NGOs, but then there are other categories of organisation. You sometimes refer to them with just the letters or the acronym, but can you say what the key levels are or types of organisation that are now involved in the delivery of community palliative care in Kerala? Sure, um, I can give a basic outline, but I'm sure Dr. Suresh who's on the ground can give yeah. a more detailed account of this. But um, when I look at it historically, it started with uh, Pain and Palliative Care Society in Code in 1993. And then it goes out into these link centres or satellite centres yeah. in and around Korikod and Malapuram, which is a neighbouring district. Uh, but around 1998, you have Nilambur, which comes up as a community organisation, which is independent and uh, uh, founded as a community organisation with an entirely non-medical professional body. From there on, satellite, uh, sorry, these uh, community organisations start proliferating so around in this region. So uh, shifting slightly away from the link centre kind of model to more of these autonomous organizations. And these have other purposes, these are No, these are all palliative care organizations oh, dedicated to palliative care, but yeah. with the idea that the community is involved, with a growing idea that the community is involved in taking decisions for itself, care caregiving and the fundraising. Rather than being a satellite of, of, of yes. Kazakodi. But of course, uh, you know, I think the medical teams continued to be functioning from Korikod. So many of these early teams will tell you how Dr. Suresh and Dr. Anil used to travel all the way there, provide care and go back yeah. 400 kilometers a day effectively, you know, through these yeah. distances. And these are hilly terrains. But I think mm. also the idea that Korikod is getting stretched at this point. The further mm. it's going into Malapuram side, more remote areas, you have these core team of doctors <coughs> who are traveling all these distances. And the idea that there needs to be something more localized and also the fact that volunteers found themselves having a greater role to play so yeah. that they can actually do more uh, so as they frame it 80% is social and 20% is medical so we can provide more financial support more emotional support for the family so you see more of community development happening here and then I think in 2001 uh, it gets formalized as neighborhood networks in palliative care um, which is this idea that uh, you know the, the, the idea of neighborhood networks gets formalized in many ways with um, you know um, pain and palliative care society and then local units at Malapuram. You also have in 2001 an in interesting initiative called Malapuram Initiative in Palliative Care, MIP as it's called, mm. which becomes a coordinating body for all the um, community organizations in Malapuram. It becomes this nodal body where people can come in from Malapuram, share their best practices, share resources maybe, ambulance and so on, and then go back. So that yeah. function of coordination yeah. comes in there. So they, you know, if you one host, one uh, organization doesn't have a nurse, uh, you know, you can turn to other organizations. So it becomes a sort of coordinating body, which is now diffused across the state. Now, how well they are functioning, I'm not sure. There may be de degrees of dis difference among all of these. But MIP was founded way back in 2001 with this idea of coordinating. 2003 is when Institute of Palliative Medicine is formed, where you have, uh, that becomes a training center. Yeah. So while training is going on, <coughs> you know, uh, prior to this, it becomes more formalized approach to training in 2003 onwards. And this has inpatient beds and uh, full Some area facilities, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Outpatient clinics. Yeah. And so I think that's pretty much the structure where, where I see 2008, of course, uh, the government comes in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then you have uh, care being provided at the primary health center levels um, with with a collaboration with the, so at least a policy statement says that you know there should be collaboration between the primary health center and the community based organization again i'm sure there are regional variances mm. in how this happens but uh, that's the the idea yeah i hope that makes but there are these other organizations that are part of a local government structure that suresh has referred to that come uh, on board after 2008 9 sure what sort of organizations are they? Yeah, like when you, when you look at them, uh, and there are three different types of organizations. Right. All, all are dedicated political organizations. Yeah. They don't have any other. But when you look uh, behind, what's behind this organization? There are a group of uh, what we call, uh, what they call uh, civil society organizations. Yeah. Um, without an obvious, uh, like this is uh, uh, what we call apolitical, uh, also uh, without uh, uh, direct influence of a religious organization. Yeah. There are also groups of, uh, there are also organizations in which uh, the a religious group plays a major role. Yeah. In some of the areas where they are active. <coughs> and recently the, uh, the uh, new entry into this is uh, organization, political organization, which are directly supported explicitly by a political party. Okay. So this is an another mm -hmm. another group. So when you they are at, on the front line, they they are for example when you when you look at them, they are all registered political organizations, mm -hmm. uh, supported by uh, say different groups. And so this is an image because uh, something that was subtle in the community earlier. For example, each any any, any organization in the community or any movement, any project in the community, if it is community, if there is community participation, uh, there will be a, a, a prominent group in it, uh, depending on what sort of local, political, or religious, or what our situation is, that the power dynamics in the community. Uh, so uh, now that uh, we are able to identify which group is behind this, because I can name, for example, when, you, when, you, when somebody suggests uh, uh, clinic, I can say that okay, the prominent group is not exclusive. Uh, like there may be other other groups or other people in it, but the prominently mm -hmm. this is the the one group which is doing it in this clinic. And but when you look, take the whole of Kerala, uh, there is no single leading group because there is depending on what the local situation is. One, for example, a Muslim religious <coughs> group is prominent in one area in Malappuram. Uh, another a political group is prominent in one area in Kano. Uh, so though individual clinics are uh, supported by different groups yeah. prominently, uh, altogether this balances with each other. Could, could I move us on a little bit now and ask you, Suresh, to describe the processes that have been involved in taking this idea from Kerala and seeking to transfer, translate or transplant it to other places within India and indeed beyond. Yeah, the one uh, when we started, like uh, when we started this process, generally the initial uh, response we had from people who were looking <coughs> at, uh, from outside were that this will not work, and then later on the response that they, they, when this has become successful in Kerala, the, the response was that this will work only in Kerala. So, mm -hmm. but my so first it won't work and then yeah, it'll only work in Kerala. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, my response yeah. has always been has that no, it, if it works in Kerala, it will work anywhere. In yeah. India, anywhere. Uh, so, we, we started trying 
to to implement it in other regions. We started first with Delhi, East Delhi is group of, again a group of Keralites there, but then the other other people also joined in. So it's still there. The whether there is a uh, dip, uh, sort of Delhi's national initiative in palliative care is called. It's fairly established. After that, we tried in Nadia and certain regions in Tamil Nadu, and this took us to Pondicherry, one of the states. Uh, then Manipur, we experimented with uh, students. And then outside uh, India, we earlier that we had started working with the Bangladeshi group earlier also. This has been 12 years now. Mm. Uh, but that was mainly institution, the BSMMU, Bangabandhu Medical University. Uh, so when there's something that we realize over the time, again, we're also gaining experience, that uh, if you start working with an institution, it takes a lot of time and it's more difficult to take it into the community. Yeah. But if you start working with the community, mm -hmm. at some stage you can link up with the institution. So, yeah. uh, so this is, yeah. Bangladesh now is now expanding to a community-based uh, project. And then uh, uh, Jakarta, Northern Jakarta, it's a single project uh, called Community Network in Palatica, exact copy of what we have been doing. So one and a half, two years old. Uh, we are also like, the, again, when you, when you look at the experiment outside, for example, Thailand, we started working. Uh, at least Northeast Thailand, uh, there is a very well established primary healthcare uh, network in Palatica now, but the community participation is yet to come. Uh, like they 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 have home care programs and the primary healthcare level and then uh, linking linking up with the uh, health volunteers but these health volunteers are paid volunteers already existing volunteers. Sri Lanka we have started doing with the primary healthcare community participation you had to develop. So this is uh, uh, what's happening like so where and in between we tried a two year project in Saint Gallen in Switzerland. Uh, which I would consider as one area with the least social capital because people are not bothered about generally. But they pay their taxes and they expect the government to take the, everything. So the two-year project with students from Surich University and some of the people attending the church regularly and do, it has been successful. They were planning to take it up further but then the, I think the administration changed or something happened. But So this is we have been able to prove that okay, this concept works everywhere because uh, this is directly related to uh, the problem in individual personal life, individual personal life. If you are able to tell them, okay, if you are able to show them that okay, how this is related to you, uh, they involve. So, and so that's what uh, we have been trying to do, and that's what we have been able to show that this. And then, the, as I mentioned in my, my talk earlier. Uh, one major barrier is the system. Uh, Well-established healthcare system versus community involvement in palliative care. This has been happening everywhere. So the the, ex the amount of resistance, the strength of resistance uh, depends on the how strong the system is. In places, for example, in places where the healthcare system is not fully organized and the system is not tight. Uh, you can find gaps where you can get in. But in, for example, places like Switzerland or UK, where the system is fairly intact, the resistance will be more. Because yeah. they don't want the common man to 
enter. enter in an area which they consider is medical. Yeah. Our argument is that this is not a medical area, so we all have a say. Now that argument is part of a wider debate about compassionate communities. Can you, can you comment a bit on how yeah. you've engaged with that whole yeah, movement? I, I think that argument is a, a, a part of a wider uh, uh, discussion on uh, the biomedical paradigm. Like how much is health and diseases, how much is health a medical issue or how much is disease a medical issue. Uh, so I think it's sort of over the time with the development of a lot of development in medical technology and change in the uh, attitude or, or approach of medicine to or diseases and communities. Uh, medicine seems to have sort of uh, occurred or, or having a position that all these are medical issues. And this is shared by most of the medical professionals and also policy makers. But in fact these are not. like. Uh, a, a disease, or even a simple disease, is not just a medical issue because it involves a lot of people, it involves social, society, it involves relationships, it involves emotions. So this is what we have been arguing. So this is uh, all the more explicit in the case of uh, an advanced disease or terminal illness because the, uh, the role of medicine in uh, reversing the condition is closed, like they, they cannot reverse. So then the, the immediate uh, uh, role or the responsibility or the, the, when you look at the medicine, but your expectation from medical field is much less. But the, the system should recognize that this is the situation and the, there are a lot of issues in which other people can contribute. So I think that is a, it has a lot to do with what Kerala has achieved and also what Kerala has uh, other, other uh, areas where it has been replicable. It's achieved it's a lot to do with some amount of what we call deprofessionalization of uh, disease and health and up yeah. and dying. Are you optimistic about the future of the compassionate communities movement? Yes, they see, uh, in a way, uh, 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 many governments or many, many policy makers are now realizing that uh, they cannot address this problem through the uh, healthcare system. Uh, because the the growing uh, the aging of the populations, the larger number of elderly people to be taken care of, larger number of people with non-communicable disease to be taken care of, even the the Switzerland experiment, the the local government was feeling that okay, it's too much for the uh, the healthcare system to address. So from that point of view, uh, the governments or the policymakers would be happy to let the uh, the community in mm. uh, because they they because they cannot. Like with the, the growing number of people in, who need of in need of this sort of care, uh, even the richest uh, government or the richest country will not be able to because we have been discussing this in Japan, we have been discussing yeah. it in Switzerland and other yeah. places. Yeah. So they will have to look for other alternatives, and the only alternative available is the community, and also so they will be. I think they will be forced to accept the. Uh, the uh, social paradigm of disease yeah. and health. Now, if I can just conclude by taking us on to why we're all here, why you're here this week, is we've been given an opportunity to invest some time and energy in thinking about the Kerala approach and how it could be best evaluated. I suppose one reaction to what you've been saying is it's very rich on the... Uh, description of the process of how it evolved over time. 
uh, it's very compelling on the level of coverage that has been achieved and of sustainability. But if one was to be a little bit more challenging, you might say it's not so compelling or strong on more formalised evidence about its effectiveness. And we can have a discussion about what effectiveness means, but what, what are your thoughts about trying to turn to this a little bit more now, Suresh, once, from this position of significant achievement, to say a little bit more about, well, how can we work out which parts of this approach are working very well or achieving what they set out to do or creating high satisfaction or meeting need and which which parts may not be doing that or you know simultaneously are there elements of both going on I mean are you optimistic that somehow we can forge a, an approach to a deeper evaluation of this kind of endeavor yeah uh, uh, one of the or the probably the most uh, uh, the biggest weakness of the the program that it has not been well documented mm. like other than uh, uh, the, the, we, we have numbers, for example, how many yeah. patients are covered yeah. and what's so, and there have been uh, one or two uh, random uh, sort of uh, uh, evaluations of the program to see what the patients is expecting or what they're getting. But uh, from the point of view of replication or from the point of view of uh, improvement, uh, there's a need for uh, proper uh, documentation and evaluation of the program. Mm. But having said that, uh, it's uh, like this process is likely to be uh, more difficult than because earlier when we were talking about the uh, early 2000, so or like the uh, initial years, uh, it was simple program like uh, a few people getting together and offering some help and some medical or nursing people mm. supporting. Now this is. Uh, Stakeholders, are, the number of stakeholders have gone up. Uh, it's the uh, state government, it's the local government, it's NGOs, it's religious organizations, it's political parties, uh, it's the primary healthcare system. Uh, in a way, it's good to see different players uh, in this area. And most of the players, and also it's good to see that most of the players are not medical players. Uh, but that makes the uh, assessment and also uh, like taking the, the uh, true picture uh, more difficult and more complicated but yeah. that is necessary and it's likely to be more complicated in future so yeah. at least yeah. now. Devi what are your initial thoughts about this evaluation and how we might sort of develop some kind of a model how optimistic are you that in a space of six months we can come up with something <laughs> that's useful? Um, optimistic, I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, being able to develop, that we can put together, uh, you know, our thoughts and something that can be, uh, that could be useful. But of course, I, I, I'm completely with Dr. Suresh here that it's going to be a very challenging exercise. I mean, even the thought of it is very intimidating. Because, I mean, even the scale of community organizations, even before 2012, uh, when you begin to see more proliferation of government agencies, um, I mean, I'd given some thought to this and it's daunting because the sheer variation in community organizations itself yeah. is so much as in some of them, for some of them, each of these organizations provide different kinds of services itself. Some of them may cater to different groups of, uh, I mean, different kinds of patient categories. They may not address all. So some, for instance, provide mental health support, some don't. Some have a large group of core, core volunteers, some have maybe 25 volunteers. 
so there's so much variation even within this state in the field of community organizations yeah. alone yeah. of course and then again comes the question of ideology you will find uh, religious inclined uh, religiously motivated uh, organizations and then of course more urban settings maybe where you will find a mix of people coming in middle class retired you know professionals and so on so how do you how do you even begin to develop a common platform uh, to assess some of these is what is this question of assessment what are we benchmarking against so many questions come up what is the idea of community so i think this would be a great ground the workshop to kind of work through some of these questions that yeah. what is it that we should be looking for in the first place uh, that we should be looking for something is important uh, because as dr suresh also pointed out one is for the idea of when you take it to other contexts what is some core minimum things that we'd expect when you say we are going to replicate the community based model what is working what is not working so well i think to have some idea of that would be important uh, and you know based on evidence and also the uh, idea that can we can it be used as for organizations feedback for themselves you know self monitoring yeah. in some way yeah. that uh, you know um, i think these would be important uh, it, this would be an important exercise for that purpose but of course how do we agree on some common uh, constructs that we can use would be i think yeah. the challenging part of this exercise one of the things that you said this morning suresh that really resonated with me is that we're we're focused not on the diagnosis but on the suffering yes so the goal is the relief of suffering are we going to be able in our time together this week to find some agreement on how we would know whether su the suffering had been relieved in some way. Mm. I think we can find a lot of kind of intermediate uh, yes. outcomes, but is there an end point for the service as a whole that we could find a way to agree on as being the most single most important thing it seeks to achieve? Yeah, that's... Uh Difficult because you can you can say look at uh, for example how much the pain has been relieved. You can look at uh, physical yeah. symptoms yeah. and you yeah. can even look at uh, as, uh, the mental some of the some of this mental uh, well-being scales. You can mm. look at how much the well-being has improved. But when you look at suffering, uh, like has it actually reduced suffering? Is something uh, I've not seen a a tool to you know, assess it. That would have been like ideally. If you have a tool which can measure uh, suffering and also like measure uh, uh, the impact of the intervention on suffering, that would have been the ideal tool because that covers everything. Mm. Uh, the other option is to look at different components uh, like the social, uh, how much has been the so problems in the social sphere, psychological sphere, yeah. uh, physical, spiritual, and see how much you have achieved. That will be a very complicated scale. And the other problem is the issue is that uh, that may not identify the the total suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that may identify. And, and it's you, to mm. enter into the sort of reductionism that you're opposed to in yeah. the, the yeah. view that you've taken of, of, of the nature of suffering as something much wider, not purely bounded by mm. medical discourse. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, this is yeah. an issue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm rather drawn back, Debbie, to what seems to be working well, what's not working so well, might be quite profitable to focus on mm -hmm. in, in the early exploration. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, it, for me, I think it would be a good ex exercise to map 
what's going on um, in the field, the different players who are there. But also, I think to begin with, even to understand what the volunteers' ideas of what is yeah. uh, the community's idea yeah. of what is effective yeah. and uh, you know what is it that patients and families are articulating as effectiveness for them? What yeah. are they receiving and yeah. which they are happy about? Um, I think those would be useful exercises to yeah. hear from the community that what is working. Um, I, that would be, I think, for me. I think that the problem that we'd run into is to uh, avoid, you know, the idea that community organizations, uh, this is how you measure effectiveness, and then go and kind of try and replicate that in this context. Because yeah. the, the idea of community here itself is very different. It's not just an organization mobilizing communities for its agenda, but community participation, you know, community uh, ownership rather. Uh, so how do you, I think we need to develop certain kinds of, different kinds of constructs for that. Yeah. Uh. Well, we've got our work cut out. It's mm -hmm. fantastic that you're here, mm -hmm. at least for a couple of days, and it's starting off a conversation. And uh, I suppose I should say, by way of conclusion, we're very grateful to the Scottish Funding Council um, through its uh, Global Challenges Research Fund contribution uh, to supporting our work. And we're, we're hoping that uh, we can do something with this initial investment and perhaps move on from that to begin to look at the possibility of conducting some of these kind of evaluations in the future. At the moment, our focus is on which type of evaluation, what model would you use? So I'm very much looking forward to um, more discussion of this over the next few days. And thank yeah, you it, once it again be for being here. Yeah. It will be a challenging uh, uh, yeah. uh, experiment or the intervention or the assessment, but a challenging project. But uh, once it comes through, whatever be the outcome, it's positive because like uh, even if you are not able to capture it in the full spirit or in the full extent yeah. uh, we will be able to capture it and even if we capture it in some segment or something this will be and and as you tell your volunteers it's a marathon not a sprint yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you have been going at this for 25 years there's still a lot to still to be worked out yeah well thank you both very much thank you, David. Mm. Thank you.